Tonight, if you turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, to chapter 3, as we begin chapter 3, remember that the Apostle Paul is writing here in chapter 3 uh, in response, actually, to the questions that were responded to, really, in, in the first letter that Paul wrote, but the church was still struggling with, how do we now implement these things? Anybody else in here every once in a while need a heart check? You're, you kind of got the truth right, but the motivation wrong. You, you, you got the directions, the general way you're supposed to go, but how to get there, maybe not so much. That's the picture here as we begin chapter 3. And Paul's struggling with some issues in, in ministry. And the truth about all ministry and this is so important, Jesse actually prayed this very thing. Ministry is not about us, it's actually about God. It's about the Lord. What we do, we do because he has saved us and we do for the purpose of making him known. And so ministry at its core is never about people. It is to people, in other words, the church is made up, of people that the Lord has reached and those that he wants to reach. But ministry is for the Lord, for the one true king. And one of the things that we see in our world today is that sometimes you have people that seem like they're more intent on building their own legacy, building their own name, building their own ministry instead of building the kingdom. And the Apostle Paul is going to give us a little bit of word here on how we can recognize in our own lives and then put forth the actual truth. And the truth is is that I shouldn't be commending myself. If there's any good thing that happens in this church, let me tell you who does it. It's Jesus. And it's not that we shouldn't compliment people. It isn't that we can't give an accolade or an encouragement to someone. But when those accolades or encouragements become necessary, when, when ministry doesn't get done unless there's some you know, promotion of some person, then we're starting to engage in ministry for the wrong reason. And Paul makes that very clear as we begin chapter 3 here in 2 Corinthians. And so would you join me? We'll pray. And we'll pick up here in verses 1 through 6. Father, we thank you that you have made ministry so incredibly simple. Lord, it really is for you. It is about you. It is to you. And Lord, we pray that you would always get the vessels out of the way. Lord, we're grateful to be used of you, but it really is for you and for your glory that we've gathered together tonight. And so we pray that your word would speak to us. Minister to your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? It begins with a question. During those days and times, um, people didn't have websites. They didn't have Instagram accounts. They didn't have a Facebook profile. Um, basically, nobody knew anybody unless they knew them personally, directly, or if they came with a letter. Uh, And we'll see that actually in scripture, that sometimes it's appropriate to send a letter of recommendation for an unknown person uh, to to introduce them to another group. But the Apostle Paul is basically saying, look, do I really need to build up my own name? Do I need to put forth my own self? Or is there some other way that you can know that the ministry that I'm engaged in is actually from the Lord? Is there some other way that you can actually measure a ministry in that sense? Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? And I think in our day and time, this is important. We live in a day and time where there are some pastors who might as well be Hollywood stars. And that is nothing against Hollywood stars, by the way. 
but it is a problem when a pastor becomes one. When the ministry becomes more about the person than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, then there's something seriously wrong. Because all ministry is for the Lord. It is to the Lord. It's because of the Lord. And were it not for his sacrifice on Calvary's cross that has brought salvation to us by grace and through faith, none of us would be in ministry. There is no ministry apart from Christ. And so he begins by saying, look, I really don't need actually a letter from you. And there's a reason for that. You are our epistle written in our hearts. I know that I know that I know that the ministry that I've been engaged in is bearing fruit. And that fruit, whether it's visible to the world or not, whether we get 10 billion hits on our Instagram account or not, and again, nothing against those things per se, but if we're doing ministry for the accolades, if we're doing ministry to be well-known, if we need to be well-known to do ministry, then there is a functional problem. Because the gospel is for everyone, everywhere, at all times. Ministry is not just for the rich and the famous. Ministry is not just to those who are in the know. Uh, Kai and I will be leaving in a couple of weeks. We'll be in El Salvador for about a week, and we're, we're going to minister to some of the churches that we've planted in the last several years. Nobody knows those churches. If I were to ask you if you knew where Sushi Toto was, probably most of you wouldn't know. You probably couldn't find it on a map in El Salvador. You would not know where San Rafael is. You probably couldn't find San Martin. But there are people who love Jesus ministering in those areas and nobody knows their name except the one true king. And he is really pleased. We need to be ministering for the right reason. We happen to be blessed to be a large church. We happen to be blessed to have resources with which to do ministry. But this is not the only way that ministry gets done. And sometimes the most beautiful ministry is the ministry that happens one-on-one at a Starbucks. Sometimes that ministry that happens in your living room with your own children may be the most important ministry that you ever do. Paul didn't need accolades. You are our epistle written in our hearts. Known and read by all men. Check that out. When the ministry of the Lord is true, when it is real, people can see it. They can read it. It's noticeable. You don't have to brag about it. You don't need to say much about it because it's so real that it stands out in an upside down world. When people have really been touched by the King of Kings and there's something going on in their life that bears the indelible mark of Jesus, you can see it. You can hear it. Often you can even touch it. Known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ. Notice he doesn't say an epistle of Paul. He says you're an epistle of Christ. You're an epistle of the good news of what the gospel actually does when someone becomes saved. I was walking around a little earlier today, just kind of checking out the progress on the paint job and wandering around, and I'm listening to conversations, and I'm just, I'm blown away. I'm listening to some very young people talk about the things of the Lord. Those are living epistles written on the hearts of those children. You know that they love Jesus. And they're going to go out into this world, and they're going to affect the world for the king. That's the kind of fruit that we want to see abound in this ministry. And yes, it's wonderful that we can gather together in in large groups. You know, it's crazy on Sunday. Of course, you know, those of us that that are here all the time, we, we see that. And we can't deny that the Lord is doing something special. But the real work is the work that happens once we go out into the mission field through the front doors. It's what happens when you go home. 
It's what happens when you live out your lives before men so that they can read the epistle of Christ that is written in you and on you and through you and to you and out of you. Ministered by us. Written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God. Amen? Amen? It's not a work of the flesh. It isn't something that we gin up. It's not something we get together and go, okay, we've got this great plan, and if we do it, like, jillions of people will come. No, it's just simply teaching the word of God simply. It's doing exactly what Pastor Chuck began Calvary Chapel doing, which is pulling out the Bible and teaching people the Bible. It's sharing the good news of the gospel so that when people become a believer that they fall desperately in love with Jesus and they want to live their lives to absolutely glorify the Lord. He says, look, this this isn't something that we just write with ink. It's not about writing a book about it. It's about living it. And again, there's nothing wrong with books. I have thousands of them. There's nothing wrong with books. Books are good. But our walks are not about the books we write. Our walks are about the lives we live. And we need to be very concerned with how we live our lives. Because this world does not care one iota about what we say or what we write if we don't also live it. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is of the heart. And Paul looks back all the way, uh, I believe, to the mount, to Moses. And then pressing forward into his own time, he's saying, look, it's never been about stones. It's never been about simply the finger of God, even carving the word itself. It's always been about what's going to happen to the human heart that comes into contact with the true and the living God. That's what ministry is about. Ministry is about us being transformed, us being renewed, our lives being changed, amen? It's not about us just sitting here listening to, you know, some crazy guy that's old on a, on a stage or some awesome worship music. It's about something happening to us that transforms our heart so that when we leave this place, we go with something we didn't have when we got here. And I want to share with you these things Brothers and sisters, because your friends are dying and they don't know Jesus. Your family members are dying and they don't know Jesus. People at work are dying and they don't know Jesus. And the one epistle that they absolutely have no choice but to read, isn't this awesome? They have no choice because they can't turn you off, they can't put you on a shelf. They can't shove you in a closet. That's illegal in the state of California. (laughs) They can read you. They can read your life. They can look at who you are in Christ and go, there's something radically different about Uli. Sorry, Uli, you're sitting there. Couldn't see you. you. You see, that's what happens. People look at our lives and go, What's right about you? Not what's wrong with you. What's right about you? You're different. The Apostle Paul is reminding us we have an obligation to be soft-hearted towards the Lord so that God can scribble whatever he wants on our lives. And we have such trust through Christ towards God. Amen? Anybody thankful the tomb's empty? Man, I'm thankful. I have trust. It's like, look, I've been there. I've seen it. It's empty. He's not there. If somebody could have produced the bones of Jesus, they would have done it a long time ago. He'd be in a museum someplace. You'd have to pay a whole bunch of money to go walk by it. You could get little signed autograph photos of him probably. But that's not where Jesus is. He sits at the right hand of God the Father, ever making intercession for you. I know where my Savior is right now. And I also know that he's walking a horse in heaven getting ready to come back. 
So you see, when I, when I think about this passage, I'm going, Lord, maybe I need a heart check. Is my heart still soft so that you can scribble on it? Am I still moldable and shapeable? I've been in ministry a very long time. And I have to ask myself this question. Lord, can you still scribble on my heart? Can can you peel back the layers of the onion of my life and still find something to write on? I have trust through Christ towards God. Jesus paid the price for my sin. One day I'm going to heaven. And just as Jesse was praying, I am excited about that. There's a weird thing that happens as you get older. You start recognizing that there are a lot more miles behind than there are ahead. And I don't say that because it's a bad thing. It's like, wow, what am I going to do? How am I going to finish the race? What's going to happen in the remaining time that I have? I maybe have 25% of my life left. Maybe. And that's if I live to be close to 90 What am I going to do with that 25%? Verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. Look, there's nothing about me that is me. Do, Do I open my lips and hopefully the Holy Spirit is able to use them? Yes. But if God doesn't speak to us, if God doesn't listen to us, if the Lord isn't in this, then we should all go home and watch the Dodgers whip up on the Nationals. (laughs) Why be here if this isn't truth that we're dealing with? Why come to church if it's just a religious experience? You, You talk about a waste of time. What a waste of time if this is not real. If what we believe isn't truth, then frankly, we should should be pitied. But it is true, and it does have value, and not one bit of it is because we're awesome. Amen? It's not because of us. It's because of him. I'm not sufficient in and of myself. My only sufficiency comes from Christ. The only reason I can do all things is because it's Christ who strengthens me. Amen? It's not I can do all things because I'm awesome. I can do all things because I'm smart. I can do all things because I've lived a long time and I have a degree in life. No, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if he's not in me doing that work, then I'm in trouble. But he is in me, and he is doing that work. And so that work matters. But our sufficiency is from God. Underline that word sufficiency. It means fulfilled totality of need. Fulfilled totality of need. Your fulfilled totality of need is is in Christ. Everything that you have need of, your God shall supply richly in Christ Jesus. Amen? It's not because we're awesome. It's not because we go to Bible college. It's not because we graduate from great learning institutions and those things are all good. So don't think I'm against school because I'm not. I'm for it. But I want you to know this. Our sufficiency is in Christ. The life that we live, we live because he is good, because he is worthy of praise, because he is the one that gifts. He's the one that builds up. And notice he underscores this by saying, who made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. I didn't become sufficient as a minister of the new covenant because of courses of study. I became sufficient as a minister of the new covenant because Christ in me is my only hope of glory. Because 
Unless the Lord builds this house, then the one who builds it labors in vain. So not just a house, not just God's house, but my house, his temple of the Holy Spirit. Unless the Lord is at work in my life building me, then I'm building something that isn't worth building. That's why life is pointless without Christ. When I talk to people who don't know the Lord, sometimes I ask him, well, what really brings you joy in life? And most of the time is the usual things. Money, fame, power, fulfillment. And I will often say, are you actually fulfilled though? Is there ever enough of those things? And invariably, if that person is being truthful, they'll say, no. That's why my sufficiency is in Christ. My hope is in Christ. My future is in the hands of the one who loves me. I'm not looking forward to this age. There are plenty of great things that happens to us while we're here on earth. I sit and watch video announcements. I go, that was cool. That was fun. Can't wait to do that. But you know what? At the end of the day, there's still going to be people dying all over the planet. There's still going to be people who need Jesus all over the world. There's still going to be things to do that matter. Not of the letter. Would you please underscore this or highlight it? Do whatever you do in your Bible. If you're not a writer in your Bible, take notes. Mark this passage on a piece of paper and look at it later. Not of the letter. In other words, it's never about simply absorbing everything that you read in God's word. That is essential for understanding. But those words can be completely in your head and never get to your heart. Those words, you can know every last one of them and never do anything with them. It is never about the letter of the law it is always about the spirit of the living God working in you yes you need to know what the Bible says but the Bible like any other piece of literature or information if you just simply read it though the book of Revelation said there's a blessing in just doing that it is the spirit at work in you that takes that word and does something with it Now, all of a sudden, what's happening is that that you've taken in is in the hands of the master. It's no longer in your hands. It's in the spirit's hands. The spirit of the living God who dwells in you and earnestly desires to use you now takes what you've taken in and says, let's go do something with it. You see, the letter can actually kill. And can I tell you, unfortunately... I've talked to an awful lot of Bible college students, seminarians, and people with degrees in theology that have not got a lick of the work of the Spirit in their life. They have a ton of head knowledge. They can even talk about theology. But there's no work of the Spirit. It is just the letter. It is just theology. Notice what he says. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Why would Paul write this at this point in time? I believe it's simply because he, me, us, we, very often need a heart check. I need to do some self-examination from time to time because what happens to us even in ministry is we're prone to rest kind of in the things that we can do and know probably every person in this room has a skill set some things that you can do fairly well and something that will happen to you as you get older is you'll find out you can do those things in your sleep and in fact I have nightmares about doing those things in my sleep sometimes any of you have working dreams I have working dreams. It's the worst thing in the world. You know, couldn't I just have vacation dreams or something? 
But I have working dreams. I'm like, I'm doing something. And then I'm like, writing it out. And I wake up and it's like, oh man, I have to do that while I'm awake. Sometimes I just need a heart check. I need to rest. And then you wake up from one of those dreams where you've been carried away in the spirit and the Lord's using you or maybe you're ministering someplace or someone you know or love gets saved. It's a little different waking up in that dream, isn't it? There's an interesting connection to reality because as the spirit uses you, it is a state whereby you are not actually doing it. It is the spirit working through you to will and do that which is his good pleasure. Is God actually working in you? Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't use your hands. doesn't mean he doesn't use your mind. doesn't mean he doesn't use your skills and talents and gifts. But it does mean that he gets to do it. He, he gets to push us along. We're used by the Holy Spirit in that sense. And so Paul simply says, look, answering this question that's asked of him, look, I, I don't need a letter from you. I really don't need you to to approve. Can I give you a little secret about heaven? When you get there, no one's going to be standing next to Jesus asking questions. You're not going to answer to your parents. You're not going to answer to your government. You're not going to answer to me. You're not going to answer to your friends. You're going to answer to Jesus. He alone is the one true judge. And so in that sense, what you do, you do for him. Because he's the one that's going to hand out the rewards, amen? I'm not going to be there going, yeah, give him one. (laughs) I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be in the back of the line with everybody else. So don't commend yourself here. Don't commend yourself here. There's nothing special really in that sense. Relative to Jesus, what's special about me? Think about it. And so Paul's actually being honest here. He's saying, look, I, I can't commend myself. How could I even think about doing that? And so Paul begins to answer this question by saying, look, if, if you want any type of validation that the ministry that I'm doing has any value whatsoever, then why don't you just simply look at the fruit of my ministry? Why don't you look at the people that are walking with Jesus? Why don't you look at the people that are sharing the gospel? Why don't you look at the changed lives? Because these folks used to be idolaters. These folks used to worship in in the most vile, unimaginable ways. These people were so jacked up that if you ran into them, you're like, man, give me the Romans because these guys are really bad. Now let's modernize that a little bit. Isn't that pretty much our story too? What happened to you when Christ came into your life? And admittedly, we all have a ways to go, amen? Say amen, because you got a ways to go. We all have a ways to go, but there was some work that God did immediately delivering you from the bondage of sin. And those things which you once were, you no longer are those things. And even if you still struggle with those things, you're struggling, you're not bathed in them anymore. You're, you're, not, you're not going home, it's like you're not looking forward to sinning, you're, you're going, man, I hate my sin. You, you see, that's what's happened to us. People can read that. People can see that in you. People can see your changed personality. Have you ever met someone who's lived a lifetime of bitterness without Christ? It is the saddest thing. Their faces are contorted with bitterness. They actually look like how they feel generally. And then you meet somebody who knows the Lord, even if they're on their deathbed, there's some crazy thing that happens. When I was with Buddy last week, I, I'm telling you, he can't even talk. And I'm sitting there looking at this man that I've had many conversations with about the joy of the Lord. But you know what? I could still tell that joy of the Lord was in him. That, that feeding tube didn't change that. 
That cancer can't take what he has. It can't. Because it's not of this earth. It's the substance of heaven. And so these believers, Paul's fruit, if you will, the fruit of his ministry, were a living letter, and it was totally visible to the world. And the same is true for you, by the way. Your changed lives, your transformed lives, your saved marriages, your fleeing sin, the redeemed work that's in your life is witness to this world that Jesus Christ is real. And so what happens is people look at us and they're going, you know, they might think you're crazy until they fall into a problem. You know, it's the weirdest thing. People that basically will say they don't want you to come to their party because you'll ruin it are oftentimes the first ones that call you when something bad happens in their life because they know you know something they don't know. Why? Because you lived it. Because they could see it. Our lives should be known and read of all men. Often think of the life of the prophet Jonah. You know, let's face it, Jonah wasn't exactly a, a, a perfect example of a believer, amen? God tells him, look, I want you to go minister to the Ninevites. He says, uh-uh, ain't happening. I go, they'll get saved. So what does he do? He runs away. That's not a great start to ministry. Just saying. You come on staff here at the church. No, I'm not doing a thing you say. I'm going the other way. God, I'm not even going to talk to you. I'm actually going to go to a different country. That's Jonah. But there's an interesting thing that happens when Jonah dies. Because metaphorically speaking, Jonah dies, amen? Jonah's dead. He's in the ocean. Matter of fact, he's in the grave for three days. He's actually resurrected. And now he's white, not because he's dressed in white clothes, because his skin is bleached out from whale barf. So imagine now this same Jonah who has no pigment left in his skin whatsoever. He's whiter than I am. The dude is seriously white. Walking around the streets of Nineveh, preaching Christ crucified, basically. He's saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What happened to him? He got changed. People could see the change in Jonah's life. Now, of course, in his situation, it's a metaphor. It's before Christ, so it's not an exact example in that sense. But you can see the picture. I was supposed to come here before, but I went the other way. And God got a hold of me, and he killed me. I died to myself, and then I got resurrected. And I'm here to tell you, repent and be saved. That's a changed life. That's what happened to Jonah. That wasn't something he could do on his own merit. It was written on an old tablet of stone called the old Jonah that went off to Tarshish. But now is in the soft kind of partially dissolved Jonah that was in the belly of the whale, right? His heart has been softened by the grace of God. Wouldn't God have been right to just leave him in the whale? Have him come out the other end? Just saying. Think about it. If you're God, what are you doing? Well, the dude went the wrong way. Forget it. He could just stay in there. I don't care. But that's God's grace. That's what happened to you, because God could say the same thing about me or you. Well, I should have let him die. Should have left him alone. Should have left him in his Tarshish. But he doesn't do that. He raises us up. He pulls us out of that old dead life and he makes us new in Christ. My mind has been renewed. My life has been transformed. And so what happens is now I wander around and it's like, Lord, let my life be a living epistle that people can read and they will see what you did. 
that was authored by the Spirit in my life, and it's authored by the Spirit in yours, amen? No book can do that. And I want to be really clear here. There are all kinds of wonderful books that can be helpful in your walk with the Lord. Let me just say that straight up. But I'm telling you that no book can do what the Spirit does. No book can do what the Spirit can do. No book has the capacity to do that. The Spirit can use a book. It can use the Bible. But the Spirit of God is the thing that makes the Word of God come alive to us. The Spirit of God is the translator. The Spirit of God is actually the author of all Scripture. That's what your Bible says, by the way. So unless the Spirit of God enlightens the Word of God, even the Word of God itself can be as it was to the Pharisees. And Jesus told them, look, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but they're actually speaking of me. You see, the Spirit of God working in the life of the believer can write things that you can't get out of any book. It can write new chapters. It can write the book that is you. And it's not pen, it's not ink. And I look at this, and like I said, I, I can almost see Paul thinking back to, to Moses. Because God's hand wrote in stone, amen? That's how the Ten Commandments came about, by the way. The same thing happens in the life of Daniel. He's there with Belshazzar, and what does he see? He's in the banqueting hall, right? All of a sudden, the hand of God comes. How would you like to get a message directly from God? Eeny, meeny, miny, no, eeny, miny, tekel, yefarsin, right? You've been weighed and found wanting. But it was still God's finger doing the writing. It wasn't like Daniel dreamed it up. God took the hardest plaster in the Babylonian Empire, in the Chaldean Empire, and said, I'll scribble on that to make sure that you know who writes. Amazing to me that the Lord continues to even struggle with us that way. Let me ask you a simple question. Jesus did a lot of miracles to record in your Bible, amen? They begin, in John's case, in John chapter 2, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, don't they? The first thing that Jesus does is turns water into wine. That's a pretty big deal. And by the way, if you read the biblical account straightforward, it looks like he made about 185 gallons or so of grape juice out of water. That's a pretty good-sized miracle. But what's a bigger miracle? Redeeming a wretched sinner like me and absolutely cleaning me so sufficiently that I can stand before a holy God or turning some water into wine? Let me give you the answer to that. Redeeming me. Because that takes a constant, ongoing work of the Spirit that God alone is capable of doing that Jesus Christ paid for on the cross by shedding his blood in my place, I am now fully, completely, totally redeemed and every sin, past, present, and future is forgiven. That, brothers and sisters, is a radical miracle. That's way bigger than feeding 5,000 people. That Jesus could clean up my life is actually a bigger miracle than anything, including raising Lazarus from the dead. Because Lazarus, here's the bummer for Lazarus, guess what? Croaked again. Jesus raises him from the dead. He comes out. He goes with Jesus to Jerusalem, and then he has to die again. But I'm never going to die again. Because I've believed on his name. And I'm going to live forevermore. And so are you who believe. What's the bigger miracle? You see, that's all authored by the Spirit. And people can see it. So the best letter of recommendation is not one that you might have to give for some of those folks that we see that actually got them in the New Testament, like Phoebe or Silas or Apollos. They all got letters of recommendation so people would know that they were sent from the Apostle Paul generally. 
you're that living letter right now, today, tonight. You are those living letters. You don't, you don't need to carry around a little, you know, we don't have any cards that say, I'm saved. You know, when you get saved, you don't get one in the mail from heaven. You're now officially a believer. You know, every once in a while, someone will ask me that question. Well, do you have membership cards? Um, no. No, we don't. Because we couldn't make anything last for eternity, so we'd have to keep making them. I usually say something. They're like, what? It's like, how do you make an eternal membership card? If you make it here, it's got to stay here, so it's not going with you. So what good is it going to do you in heaven? And you're going to spend most of eternity there. They're authored by the Spirit. Paul says, look, if you want to see my life, you want to see my heart, my life is actually revealing my heart to you. Verse four, he says, we have such trust through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. If you want to know how somebody's doing with the Lord Jesus, find out what percentage of their life is dedicated to him. Are they all in? Are they 100% for the Lord? Or are they like 43.7% for the Lord and 50-something percent for Jesus? You see, somebody who's a real, visible, living epistle, everything's about Jesus. Now, I don't know how, and this is, and I don't mean to snicker about this, because it is kind of funny, but I have family members that have asked me not to talk about Jesus anymore. Any of you have that? Don't talk to me about your Jesus thing. I don't want to hear it. Why do you suppose that is? Because I always talk about Jesus. You know, sometimes we go over, Connie and I will be at somebody's house, and it's like they expect us to have some alter ego, you know, and we start talking about life and what's it about. Well, it's this mission trip or that Bible study or church or what's, it's always about Jesus. And that is not a bragamony. That's just simply, that's what we are. That's who we are. Somebody talks to us, you're going to know in about 30 seconds, oh, you're one of them. (laughs) Hallelujah. We're all supposed to be like that. Your family should know that you know that you love Jesus. There's a lot of undercover Christians these days. Well, I don't tell anybody about my walk with the Lord. I don't want them to get the wrong idea that I'm a Jesus freak. (laughs) And it doesn't just happen in the South. It happens here in L.A. too. But we have people like that, right? It's like, oh, I, I I have secret faith. What kind of faith is secret faith? Is it like faith that you don't want anybody to know about it? Please. Your faith is going to be revealed in your life. Why do you think James wrote that I will show you my faith by my works? Why do you think he wrote that? Because there's nothing that shows your faith better than what you do with it. Amen? How much you talk about it. If you want to do some bragging, brag on Jesus. Amen? Paul's heart was revealed in his life. He says, look, I, I so trust Christ. And look, I talk about him all the time. People get upset with me. And look, Paul was a brilliant guy. Don't mistake what I'm saying here. This is not a case for, well, you know, I'll just, uh, I'll learn a few Bible verses and I'll just repeat them endlessly. No, that's not what this is about. Paul was schooled under Gamaliel, the most prominent rabbi of the day. He knew more about what we call the Torah, the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, than anybody on planet Earth. Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. That meant he was a religious attorney. He was actually a lawyer. So he spent his time judging religious law cases. That's why the Sanhedrin, those 72, gathered together. So he was a brilliant theologian in that sense. 
But until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was a legalist. He was a Pharisee. He knew the law forwards and backwards, and his heart was hard. You see, you can be a legalist and have a hard heart. You can know the scriptures forward and backwards and basically do nothing with them. Be careful. You can have an eloquent tongue, and that tongue doesn't accomplish much for the kingdom. How do we check for a new heart? Who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant? There's a new covenant. You see, the old covenant was the law. Amen? And I want to look at this fairly, fairly sufficiently in our remaining time. He says, look, it's made us sufficient, sufficient ministers as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. Why? Because the letter kills, but it's the spirit that gives life. Why do you think the apostle Paul said that? And I want you to just simply think back on what you know about the law. Now, I know all of you go home and you read extensively the book of Deuteronomy, um, probably nightly just to make sure that you don't mix any of your fabrics, that you don't eat shellfish on a Tuesday, that, you know, you, any of you bacon eaters out there? You remember when Wendy's had that sandwich called the Baconator? It had four layers of bacon in it. You're a dead man under the law for eating a Baconator, okay? How about if your friend's ox gores somebody in your field? The reason that law, the law is in view here is the law, for the most part, said one thing, kill him. Most of the penalties under the Old Testament law was death. Idolatry, death. Adultery, death. Sorcery, death. Murder, death. Sounds like a rock band. Yeah, I'm with murder, death. No, but you you get what I'm saying. The law was brutal. It was awful. It was weighty, and here's the worst part. Nobody ever, ever, not one, got saved by keeping the law. There was never a person in the course of human history who was saved because they perfectly kept the law because no one could keep the law perfectly. And yet all the law did was, did was shout out to us, kill them, they're dead So here comes the Apostle Paul, and he makes this point to the new covenant. He says, look, the old covenant was the covenant of death. But the new covenant is the covenant of life. What's the answer to your sin? It's grace, isn't it? It's forgiveness, isn't it? The law is never the answer to your sin. That's why the Apostle Paul said the law was simply a tutor, a schoolmaster unto Christ. All the law could do was tell you guilty, 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 guilty. It could make you run to the temple. It could make you offer sacrifice. It could make you wait for the day of atonement agonizingly so that you hoped you didn't die before the next day of atonement. You see, the law could never save you. That's why legalism still can't save you. That's why no matter how good at law-keeping you are, you still need the grace of God. You still need his mercy to be new every single morning. Amen? Praise God. He does not give us what we deserve, but he gives us what we do not deserve. That's why grace and mercy go together. Amen? So when I think about God's law, I think, oh, praise God, I'm not under the law anymore. Because the law was death. That's why it says, look at it, the letter kills. It's always killed. 
It's always just simply brought us to the place to where you go, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead woman. There's no possible way this is going to work out. I'm going to blow it some way. Can you imagine, in a historical Jewish context, the most common number is 613, that those 613 to 617 specific laws that are contained within the Old Testament that the Jewish people were supposed to keep faithfully, by the way, not kind of sort of some of the time. So if you had a bad day, you were excused from any of it, no, all of it. And you're out there, you're just toiling away, and and you're doing your calculations on your mint and your cumin. You get out your salt, it's like here's God's 23.7%. You do your cumin next to that, and you got a little bit of something else, a little bit over here. And your dog, if you have one like ours, the Labrador comes by and wipes it off the table. Oy vey! I've got to do this again, right? It's like, that was all of my spices. What am I supposed to do now? That's the law. You see, you were responsible to keep the law even if it was costly. You didn't get a do-over. Well, I already paid taxes. Well, you get to pay them again. I already made that offering. You get to make that offering again. And you kept making the endless offerings because there was no amount of offering that could shed the blood necessary to forgive you. It could only atone. It could only put it away. It could only cover it. It could only kafar. So here, your sin's covered. It's kind of like, okay, we got a down payment on it. But waiting on the other side of that was the full justice and judgment of God. And so you were, in essence, waiting to die. You were waiting for God to judge you. My life was judged at the cross. And I don't wait for judgment anymore. I wait for glory. That's why it says the law kills the letter of it, but it is the spirit that gives life. It's the spirit of it's the new covenant working in you, which was a completely new concept to them. You see, the legalists had their souls shackled to the law. But when you do this heart check, here's the crazy thing. You realize who the Son has set free is free indeed. Amen? I'm not sitting around trying to figure out, well, you know, I wonder which part of the law is going to get me. You see, that's what happened in the Old Testament. Because most people are pretty good at something. I mean, most of us can keep a law or two pretty well. But all of it, not a chance in the world. How many of you, if you had to be perfectly uncovetous, are ever going to meet that one? Good, there's no hands up. Because I would covet your ability to do that. And then I'd be in... No, we, we all want things that are not ours. Amen? Some dude drove down the street. In a, I was sitting in my office. I'm trying to study, okay? So whoever keeps going up and down the street in the Maserati, knock it off. I look out there, you know that throaty sound? Guys, you know what I'm saying. Oh, man, that'd be awesome. And for like three seconds, I'm thinking, yeah, well, you know, I think the church would forgive me if I drove that. No, that's not happening. But for a second, I'm like, you know, that's pretty awesome. And I had to repent. So whoever that was, you're tempting me. (laughs) Let no one say when he's tempted, he's tempted by God, by the way, but drawn away by his own lust. You see, all the Mosaic law would spell out heaven's minimum standard of behavior required of man. That's it. That's all it did. So you have to do this. And man couldn't do it. Praise God for grace, amen? Praise God, praise God, praise God for grace. And so when the Lord Jesus reveals that the true spirit of the law 
was contained in what he said on the Sermon on the Mount. You realize that's what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He's comparing the law basically to the Spirit. He's saying, look, blessed are the merciful, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Amen? He said, forgive those who spitefully use you and persecute you for my need. He's completely reversing, he's turning the law on its head. He's saying, look, if you want to keep the law, forget it. It's not going to happen. You need mercy. You need grace. You need forgiveness. You don't need the law. The good news is if you have his mercy and you have his grace, you have his forgiveness, you'll actually do better at keeping the law. As the law passed through the prism of the Lord's mind and as he shared it with the people sitting there listening to that sermon, can you imagine how dumbfounded they were? Mercy? Forgive? Wow. You see, that was a stark contrast to the law itself. Why? Person who embraced a false religion. The law said, death. Person who consulted a witch or a medium, death. A man who cursed his parents. Some of you parents might like this one. Death. (laughs) Almost every sexual sin penalty was death. How about breaking the Sabbath? Any of you work seven days a week? Shame on you. Straight to hell. That's what you get with the law, right? You 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 didn't take a Sabbath. Whoop. You're out of here. How about a blasphemer? Somebody that said something that that misrepresented God. That's all that means. Blasphemy is simply misrepresenting God. Some of you do that when you drive. You're that guy in the Maserati. That's misrepresenting God. (laughs) Kidnappers, death. Rebellious children, death. There's some hallelujahs being sung right now in the loft, the hideout, and children's ministry. Praise God. A guy who failed to lock up his savage, mean bull. Death. You get the picture? Lying testimony. Death. Praise God for grace, amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, legalism is lifeless. It's lifeless. It is absolutely lifeless. Now, I want to be really clear here. I did not just permit you, nor did I tell you to go out and send your little brains out. (laughs) Not only did I not say that, let me tell you really clearly, he who practices sin shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Did you just hear what I said? So it's not about you getting free to sin. It is getting you freed from sinning. Amen? By the grace of God. That's why they needed a heart check. Because they were wandering around going, well, you know, if I just write a book, if I just do these things, somebody gives me a letter. No letter can do that. No amount of you keeping the law can do that. It is only the Spirit that gives life. And without the Spirit, we can't have life. That's why we praise God for that new covenant that's given us life. That's why there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Because he has set us free from the bondage of sin and death by grace, through faith. He's given us life by the Spirit. And we need to rejoice in it and be living epistles so that other people can see how marvelous it is to walk in this grace. Amen? Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in prayer? Maybe you're here tonight and maybe you don't know Jesus. I'm going to have some pastors come forward and they'll be up here in the front and 
Maybe the Spirit of God's moving in your life right now and you're, you're saying, Pastor Jeff, I, I need God's grace, but I'm not sure I have it. It's as simple as believing on his name and you'll be saved. But it's the one true name. It's the name above every name. It's the one who died on Calvary's cross for your sins. It's the one who was buried in that grave and raised three days later. By the power of God, the one who cried out from the cross to tell us, die, it's finished, and the one who said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The one that brought that grace into a place that we could reach it by simply asking. Maybe you're still struggling with trying to win God's approval. Look in Christ Jesus, you have it. Now the only question is, will you be a living epistle for him? Will you, will you walk it? Will you live it? So if you need prayer, come on up after service. Father, thank you. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for dying on the cross for our sin, being raised for our justification, our sanctification, our maturation, our glorification. Lord, one day, one day, Lord Jesus, we get to see you face to face and we can't wait. I pray for anyone that's here tonight that Maybe they've been struggling with their relationship with you and they just need to do a turnabout. They've been going the wrong way and the law has convicted them. And Lord, they're here tonight because they need to repent, get right with you. Maybe there are some that don't know you at all, but they want to. Holy Spirit, speak into their lives right now that they need to come and do business with the King of kings and Lord of lords and receive you by grace and through faith invite you into their heart. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you that the Spirit gives life. Lord, thank you for that life. And help us to live that life so openly and unashamedly that people would see what's right with us and ask of the hope that's in us. Thank you for that blessed hope. In Jesus' name, amen.